Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. I'm Melika McCutcheon, a lawyer in Barry Nelson's National Health Law Team. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to include a content warning. This episode of The Checkup discusses some highly sensitive topics including those of death and suicide. If you find this episode triggering and would like to talk to someone for support, remember Lifeline is always there on 13 11 14. For those of us that haven't been through losing a loved one to terminal illness, it's hard to imagine what it's like. As health lawyers and medical professionals and the like, it's common to see the lived experiences of loss through others. So when the voluntary assisted dying legislation was implemented in various states across Australia, it got many of us and certainly me thinking, what will we see change? Will patients and their treatment options be impacted? And what about my loved ones and their lives? Over the course of my work, I came across a particular matter, one in New South Wales, that really got me thinking. What will the introduction of voluntary assisted dying laws change? To help me unpack and process some of these questions, I recently spoke to Dr. Katrine Del Villiar, a health law researcher at Queensland University of Technology, who generously offered her expert insight into my thoughts about the matter. I'll play that call for you shortly, but first I'd like to share some background about that matter that I mentioned before. It referred to a story, starting in 2012, when a doctor and a nurse fell in love. Five months after meeting, they moved in together, and two years later, they had a marriage ceremony. They had what was described as a loving, intimate relationship, but things weren't perfect. She was sick, and she had been for many years. The nurse, let's call her patient A, was suffering from stage four breast cancer. She had chemo and radiotherapy, but it was spreading. Life was painful, and she was suffering. As a nurse, patient A was well aware of what was coming and she wanted control over it. So one day, patient A hosted a family gathering. She spoke about her will, about managing her property, about lodging tax returns. She said goodbye. She watched a TV show, had a cup of tea and said it was time. Later that night, the doctor, her partner, called triple zero. He explained that his wife, patient A, had ended her life. It wasn't until a few years later that exactly what happened that night came into question via a call to the police. Someone who explained that the doctor, patient A's former partner, was involved in her death. As it turned out, sometime after the death, the doctor had met someone new. They had a relationship for two or so years. He told her about that night and patient A and that he had participated played a role in her plan. And when the relationship ended, she explained what she knew to the police. A police investigation was opened in the year 2018. And I won't get into the particulars of involvement here, 
but I will say that he was ultimately found guilty. Although the magistrate specifically noted that he participated in the plan out of sincere and abiding love, he was sentenced to 12 months prison, convicted for aiding and abetting suicide, which is an offence under Section 31 of the New South Wales Crimes Act. That was almost four years ago, and since that time, a lot has happened within end-of-life law. As I mentioned, I have some thoughts about the matter, and I wanted to run them by Dr Del Villiar. Here's our phone call. Hello, Katrine speaking. Oh, hey, Katrine. I'm Milica from Barry Nielsen Lawyers. How are you going? Well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Yep, sure. So as I mentioned to you in email, I recently read that New South Wales disciplinary proceedings case that referred to patient A and the criminal prosecution for aiding and abetting suicide. And I just found it really interesting because it was quite recent in 2018. It concerned those medical professionals. And then recently they've gone back and revisited the case for disciplinary proceedings. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about it because it was three and a half years ago. I'm interested to hear how you think the laws concerning end of life have changed in Australia since then. Yeah, that's a good question. So In terms of the facts of Godwin's case, the law hasn't changed. So assisting a suicide is still illegal under the criminal law in all the Australian states and territories like it was in 2018. What has changed is that some Australian states have now passed voluntary assisted dying laws and so patient A might be able to access voluntary assisted dying in those states under a lawful process instead of being privately assisted to die by her partner and subjecting him to criminal prosecution and then disciplinary proceedings. So in December 2018, when Godwin was prosecuted, assisted dying wasn't lawful anywhere in Australia. There had been legislation passed in Victoria in November 2017, but that didn't commence until June 2019. Since the prosecution in Godwin, legislation permitting voluntary assisted dying was passed in Western Australia and that commenced in July last year, 2021. And in 2021, Tasmania, South Australia and Queensland all passed laws authorising voluntary assisted dying as well. None of them are operational yet. Tasmania's will be in October and Queensland and South Australia early next year. So there's strong momentum in favour of authorising voluntary assisted dying in Australia at the moment. In New South Wales, a bill has passed the Legislative Assembly in December last year. It hasn't yet been debated in the Upper House of Parliament there. So it was referred to a committee of the um, Legislative Council and it reported neither um, recommending that the bill be passed or recommending that it not be passed. So we don't really know what's going to happen in New South Wales at the moment. Currently, we have a situation where voluntary assisted dying is lawful or will soon be lawful in five out of the six states of Australia. We don't know whether New South Wales will join them or not. And I should also mention that the territories in Australia, so the ACT and the Northern Territory, are not allowed to legislate for voluntary assisted dying because the Commonwealth has enacted a law using its um, plenary power to um, legislate for the territories to prohibit them specifically from doing that. And I think there were talks about, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there were talks about repealing that 
Commonwealth legislation that prevented the territories from legislating. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there's been several attempts to do that over a period of years and hasn't been successful in any of those attempts. There talks about it again now that there's momentum in the, in the states to say that the territories shouldn't be excluded and they should be allowed to exercise their own lawmaking powers, but the Commonwealth is not interested at the moment. So it's, um, it's really interesting, isn't it, that mm. so in Victoria and Western Australia, there's currently law in effect where certain persons can access voluntary assisted dying if they meet a certain criteria. And then we've got a number of other states, um, Queensland included, where law has been passed, but it's not in effect. And then obviously New South Wales and the territories where there is no current law that's been passed. When you look at the states, there is a different threshold to be able to access voluntary assisted dying. There's some similarities, but there also are a few differences that I think are important to talk about, especially in the context of patient A's case. One thing that really stuck out to me was the difference in the time frame of prognosis. Would you be able to just explain a bit of the difference between the states? Okay. So starting at the beginning, there are six or seven criteria that have to be met to um, access voluntary assisted dying in all of the states in Australia. And an individual has to meet all of those criteria. There are three demographic criteria which have to be met and they're not as easy as it might seem. And then there's three or four diagnostic criteria. So starting with the demographic criteria, a person has to be an adult. So this is not something that's available for people under 18. They have to be an Australian citizen or a permanent resident. And that's a criterion that has caused some problems in several cases already in Victoria including people who have lived in Australia for 40 years or more if they've never taken out Australian citizenship or permanent residency. So Queensland's law and Tasmania's and the bill that's currently on the table in New South Wales are a bit more flexible on this criterion and they allow a person who's ordinarily been resident in Australia for at least three years to meet that criterion. So you don't have to have the citizenship or permanent residency paperwork to be eligible for VAD. We don't have any evidence in the case as to whether patient A was an Australian citizen or permanent resident, but if she had been living in New South Wales for three years or more, then she would qualify under New South Wales' more flexible criteria there. The third criterion is that you have to be ordinarily resident in the state for at least 12 months, and patient A clearly meets that criterion because it's evident from the case that she'd lived in New South Wales since at least 2012. So she probably would have met the three demographic criteria in New South Wales if the bill passes and has the same criteria that it currently has. It's not amended in the upper house. Moving on to the diagnostic criteria, a person has to have decision-making capacity. It seems that patient A would have had decision-making capacity at the time of her death because she called a family gathering on the morning that she had chosen to die. She spoke to her relatives about her death and also about financial matters like her will and what to do with her superannuation, things like that. And that's obviously not the capacity test, but in a situation where her capacity wasn't an issue, it suggests she had a clear understanding of what she was doing and the consequences of the choice that she was making. The one that you mentioned, Milika, the disease, illness or medical condition has got a number of different requirements within it. So that condition needs to be advanced, progressive and expected to cause death. In patient A's case, she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer in 2006. So stage 4 breast cancer is an advanced condition. 
She underwent a range of treatments that weren't effective and then in 2012 her partner found another nodule, so her cancer was not cured or in remission, it was progressing. And the statement of agreed facts that was before the court in the criminal proceeding said that at the time of her death in 2014, she was terminally ill with breast cancer. So that is evidence that her condition would cause her death. The second component of the medical condition is the time frame which you mentioned. So in all the states except for Queensland, a person with a physical condition, that condition needs to be expected to cause their death within six months. If the condition is a neurodegenerative condition, so something like motor neurone disease, then that condition has to be expected to cause death within 12 months. Queensland's different from that and it just says a simple 12-month time frame regardless of whether the condition is physical or neurodegenerative. In the case of patient A, the statement of agreed facts said that she had weeks to live. Now, we don't know for sure, but like describing it as weeks to live sounds like less than 26 weeks because otherwise they're more likely to say she had months to live. If it's the case that her death was expected to occur in less than six months, which we haven't got clear evidence on from the facts of the case, then she would meet this criterion for an eligible medical condition. If it's the case that it was more than six months, then she wouldn't. And then the last criterion that's part of the disease, illness or medical condition is that she be um, suffering from a medical condition. That's something that's assessed subjectively. So by reference to patient A's views, what's acceptable to her. And we can presume that if she had decided that it was time to commit suicide, she did find her condition intolerable. And the last criterion um, in most states is that the decision is voluntary and free from coercion. In this case, patient A's decision was clearly voluntary given all the preparations that she made and her determination to complete the suicide at a time when her partner was out of the house so that he wouldn't be suspected. So subject to what we don't know about residents in Australia and about how many weeks was with to live, I would say that patient A probably did meet the eligibility criterion to access voluntary assisted dying. It sounds like from your analysis, it is possible and even likely that patient A would have met the criteria to access voluntary assisted dying across all of the legislation that exists within each state in Australia. Yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah. I should say as well that some states have a seventh criterion and okay. New South Wales is one of those states. So um, New South Wales and Western Australia require that the person's request is an enduring request. The other states that don't explicitly say that still assess it in a way by requiring multiple requests over a period of time. It's pretty obvious in this case that patient A's request was enduring because she'd been playing it for over two years. So she'd meet that criterion as well. So in order for her to actually access the voluntary assisted dying regime, um, she would have to have some type of quantifiable evidence of all of those things that you talked about. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So she would need to bring evidence of her, like a birth certificate, evidence of citizenship or residency. Um, to prove that you've been resident in the state for 12 months, you need to bring in a driver's licence or bills or bank statements, that kind of thing. There's a lot of paperwork involved. Clinical criteria would be assessed at at least two appointments, and so they'd need evidence from her treating specialist that her prognosis was less than six months. Um, 
they would need the the person who was assessing her would need to evaluate her capacity carefully and watch out for any signs that her decision might be coerced or wasn't truly her um, own free and voluntary decision. So it's a pretty complicated process. Yeah, it is quite complicated. So we can look at the matter and we can draw on the facts that are available and say, look, um, based on all of these implications, it's likely that she would have met the threshold requirements. But the reality um, and the practical reality is that there are a number of hurdles that she'd have to face, including getting a number of assessments by independent medical experts and then also those administrative things like uh, gathering all of those documents to show that she's an Australian citizen, she has a residency and things like that. That's correct. And the um, early studies from Victoria have shown that the doctors who are involved in the process actually find those administrative requirements very time-consuming and in some cases quite problematic because they're being asked to look at things like whether a person is a permanent resident, which is a legal question. It's not a medical question, but they need evidence before they can proceed with the process. Mm. Have you experienced any anecdotal or even evidence firsthand of doctors having those reported issues with the regime? Um, Yeah, there's a study that was published in the Medical Journal of Australia, I think, last year by Marcus Sellers and Ben White and Lindy Wilmot and others, and they interviewed doctors who have been participating in voluntary assisted dying in Victoria, and it was one of the major issues of concern that they had, just how difficult the requirements are. And it also causes delays for people who are already dying, and in some cases they have thrown out their paperwork So it's even more difficult for them to prove things because their view is, I'm dying, I don't need this anymore. So, yeah, it is a big issue. Yeah, it could be pretty complicated as well because um, just thinking about the fact that each state has their own legislation and their own residency requirements. I mean, a lot of families, I know my own family, is spread across numerous states. The reality is if you are terminally ill, you probably are looking to maybe potentially travel between states to get treatment or to see your family members. And then I I guess that would become a whole other hurdle in itself. Yes, it definitely is. And there was a case like that in Victoria that actually ended up at the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal because it involved a man who had lived in Victoria for a long time, but he travelled a lot to other states. And he was in Queensland when he was diagnosed with cancer. And he returned to Victoria to be close to his son. And there was a, a lot of disagreement between the doctor and the um, authorities in Victoria as to whether he met the requirement for ordinarily resident in Victoria. Because he had a nomadic kind of lifestyle, they were looking for evidence of residence that he wasn't necessarily able to provide. The tribunal ended up deciding that he was ordinarily resident in Victoria and that he didn't have to have lived there for a solid 12 months before applying for assisted dying, but that delayed his application by two or three weeks. Apart from anything else, it's um, emotionally draining to try and, you know, be going through a tribunal process at the time when you're also dying. That's a really interesting case. I know you have been involved in a great deal of research in this area and I was particularly interested in um, your paper regarding mercy killings and bad deaths. It's interesting to hear that patient A would potentially meet the threshold requirements to access voluntary assisted dying and I wonder if it's the same for many of those similar cases that have been before Australian courts. I note your paper, Suicides, Assisted Suicides and Mercy Killings, 
Um, what can you tell me about some of those cases that you analysed and whether or not those other patients met the criteria to access voluntary assisted dying? Yeah, that's a good question. So this is a paper that I um, co-authored with Professor Ben White and Professor Lindy Wilmot, and we looked at the um, publicly available cases where friends or family were prosecuted for assisting a loved one to commit suicide or were involved in a mercy killing over the last 40 years. Now, mercy killing is not a legal term. It's just a term that means that um, it's not a killing motivated by anger, but it's motivated by compassion um, and a desire to, to alleviate the suffering of a person that you love. So we found 27 publicly available cases that were reported or unreported but were available in the public domain. And the um, short answer is that only in four of those 27 cases will that person have been eligible for voluntary assisted dying. Because there was no information in the cases about um, whether the person was an Australian citizen or resident, we focused our research on the clinical criteria. So we looked at capacity, the person's medical condition, and whether the decision was the person's free and voluntary choice. And we found that capacity was a major issue in more than half of the cases. So we estimated that at the time of death, the deceased person had capacity in only 12 out of the 27 cases and that they lacked capacity in nine of the cases, either because they had severe dementia or had suffered a major stroke. And there was one case concerning the death of a severely intellectually impaired young adult. And then there were six cases where we couldn't determine from the reported decision whether the person had capacity or not. Now, I should emphasise that in the case of voluntary assisted dying, capacity would be specifically assessed in every case, whereas these are cases where capacity wasn't an issue because the person had said to their partner or um, daughter, I'd like some assistance, please. So they weren't going through a medical process and that's why there was a little bit of difficulty with determining capacity. But the fact that there were nine people who clearly lacked capacity and then made a choice that they wanted their life to end was of concern. And those cases are never going to be part of the voluntary assisted dying framework. So those cases are never going to be resolved by this legislation. The second major issue that we looked at was diagnosis and prognosis. So what kind of condition the person had and whether that condition was progressing and their death was expected to occur within less than six months or 12 months if they had a neurodegenerative condition. And this was the most significant finding, I think, that only four out of the 27 cases involved a person who was in the final stages of a progressive terminal condition. So there were two cases where a person had cancer, one case where a person had motor neurone disease and one where there was a variety of other health conditions, but the person was in palliative care and was expected to die within three months. The other cases, um, there were four people who were in chronic pain but weren't expected to die in the, next, in the near future. Two people with degenerative conditions, so it was progressive, but their death wasn't anticipated to occur soon. Five people with disability, five with mental illness and seven with dementia. So the requirement that the person has an illness where the death is expected to occur within six or 12 months is going to exclude many of those people who find their situation intolerable from accessing assisted dying. So I guess what the cases show is that people seek assistance to end their lives for a variety of reasons, not just because their death is um, coming up in the next few months. And I don't mean that as an argument that the voluntary assisted dying criteria should be expanded 
to include painful or disabling but non-terminal conditions. I'm just stating that there are going to continue to be bad deaths occurring outside the voluntary assisted dying regimes. And an example of that is um, a very famous case that was in the newspapers was in 2018. Dr. David Goodall went to Switzerland to seek assisted dying there because it wasn't lawful in Western Australia. It is now lawful in Western Australia, but he still would not be eligible to access it because his situation was he was 104, he was frail, he had multiple health conditions, but he wasn't terminally ill, so he wouldn't meet the criteria for voluntary assisted dying in Western Australia or anywhere else in Australia. So patient A, I would say, is within the minority of cases, at least the reported cases. And the third consideration that we looked at was whether the decision was voluntary, which is obviously a key prerequisite to voluntary assisted dying. And we found that 10 of the cases, it was not a voluntary decision of the person. So they hadn't asked their friend or family member, can you please help me to die? It was a decision that was taken by the family member on their behalf. And in 17 of the cases, the decision was voluntary. So that's obviously the highly concerning end of the study was the number of people for whom somebody else made a decision that they, they were suffering intolerably and decided to take action on their behalf, which is unfortunately not that uncommon. So I guess in short, um, you could say that your research has found that there are a small number of cases where persons have been convicted for charges such as aiding and abetting suicide, like that of patient A. Yes. And they would change, the outcome could potentially change if they happened in a time where voluntary assisted dying was legal. But the reality is that there are many cases where there are uh, what you refer to as bad deaths that the voluntary assisted dying regime wouldn't have an impact on. Yeah, that's correct. I should say as well that the voluntary assisted dying process isn't going to be for everyone. So there was a case that occurred in Victoria last year at a time when voluntary assisted dying is lawful involving a person, an 80-year-old man who had bowel cancer and he um, decided that the time had come and he wanted to end his life. So he went to the doctor and he said, can you give me the suicide pill? Um, today's the day. And she said, well, we can start the process of voluntary assisted dying later today, but it will take up to two weeks. And he wasn't going to have a bar of that. And so he said, today's the day. He went home and he asked his son and daughter if they would help him to die. His daughter refused and his son said, I'll help you if I need to, but I really don't want to. And his father pressured him and he eventually shot his father point blank range in the head which was what his father wanted. His father was going to do it himself if his son wouldn't help. And he was originally charged with murder and that was later changed to assisted suicide. And the, the judgment has got similar themes coming through it to the Godwin case that the judge described the son's acts as loving and courageous and selfless. And he was motivated by a desire to help his father to achieve his wishes, even though it was extremely traumatic for him. But it just shows that even when there is a process and even when the person has a terminal condition, sometimes they're not willing to go through the process. Mm, because it can be quite a lengthy process, Connor. As we discussed earlier, there are um, a number of criteria you have to meet and all of there's all that administrative burden as well as having to have a clinical assessment. So it can take, as you said, a couple of weeks. Yes, it takes at least a couple of weeks. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been very informative. It is a very interesting area. Now let's go back to the case, the one I mentioned before, the doctor and the nurse, patient A, that fell in love. 
What really struck me was a particular remark in her note to the police. Buried in the middle of the letter, she said, As legal euthanasia is not possible in Australia, I have been forced to make this decision and implement it myself. It's the only option a sane person would make. Voluntary assisted dying is a topic that does carry some controversy. Differing opinions reflective of the range of moral and ethical considerations that dictate each of our unique lives. Whether you're morally for or morally against, most jurisdictions in Australia will have a legally accessible regime for those that are eligible. And maybe the story of patient A would have been different if it was set in a later time, in a different place, one when voluntary assisted dying was legal. And for doctors, medical professionals, and those working within clinical settings, the introduction of voluntary assisted dying could lead to some entirely different issues. But that's a whole other topic. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Checkup. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like to know more, head to our website, www.bnlaw.com.au.